You are listening to the In Perspective Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter O'Toole. Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco, and this is episode 279, dated Friday, October 14th. 2022. With us, as always, Peter Alchil, our good friend and co-host. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Bob. It's gloriously fall, fallish in Colombia. I guess it's about 65 degrees and sunny. Couldn't be better. Great. So let me thank those of you who make it possible for In Perspective to be made available to the general public. We start out with Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place Chatline. They post our shows on greeting door number 15. Jacqueline Sylvia from JS Web Solutions. She posts our shows on my website, which is www.brancoevents.com. And then we have our media outlets who air our programs when they want to, and we really appreciate their efforts in doing that. We gain more listeners that way. Back again for another appearance, we have Bill Kosiaba. He wants to talk about fitness, and fitness is very, very important. As we all know, all of us should practice it and, and, and do what we can. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Bob. It's a pleasure to be back here, and it's it's been a while, but I'm happy to be back, and we can talk about fitness or anything else you'd like. Before we go any further, I have to say something, and as you know, I did a podcast, a weekly podcast uh, called Real World Fitness for about two years, and it was exhausting, finding guests, recording, doing my research. And I am so impressed with the fact that you're still doing this after four or five years. I don't know. How long have you been doing this? Five and a half. Okay. Well, you're my hero. I couldn't do it. Well, that's entirely up to you, obviously. You know, it's not made for everybody. It does involve patience, though. We have patience enough to do it. That's half the battle. Yes, that's definitely true. You also need some patience to be fit, right? It takes a certain amount of patience and uh, grit and all that other good stuff. Well, what it really takes is consistency. This is an instant world. It's become an instant world. People don't have the patience to put in the time to achieve anything, whether it's a fitness thing or... You know, you, you get kids right out of college that think they should be making a hundred grand, two hundred grand a year, and you know, but just people have no patience in in going through the steps. And yeah, fitness is a process that you have to be consistent with over a period of time. How did you become involved with fitness? How I got involved in fitness. I was a little fat kid. I was the kid that got bullied. It's almost like the cliche of the 98-pound weakling that gets sand kicked in his face. But in my case, I was the little fat kid 
with the squinty eyes that, you know, everyone made fun of. My brother was a super athlete. He was much older than me. And he was the star athlete, football, baseball, basketball, track, college, college scholarship offers, you name it. And I couldn't participate in sports, so I didn't care about sports, but I got obsessed with pro wrestling when I was a kid. And like every other kid, comics, superheroes. I wanted to be big. I wanted to be strong. I, did, I wanted to be somebody that people couldn't push around and make fun of. So I started working out when I was 12 or 13. Took me several years just to get into average shape because I was had zero muscle tone. You know, as, as everyone that's listening is visually impaired, or at least most of them are, correct? I would say. Yeah. Okay. So so then many of you can can relate to this. If you're blind or you're partially sighted, you don't grow up like other kids. You don't play outside and run and jump and wrestle and roll in the dirt and you know, do all the things that normal kids do. So your body doesn't naturally develop strength and coordination just by the mere nature of, of playing when you're a kid. So it took me several years to get in even average physical condition because I had never done anything. And um, honestly, the first place I felt like I ever fit in the world was when I walked into a hardcore bodybuilding gym. Um, my parents had gotten me a membership in a Vic Tannies, which was more like a spa type environment. And it was okay. But when I went to a real gym, they all helped me. Nobody made fun of me. They saw this, this chubby kid that really was serious and really wanted to improve. And, and they were nice to me. They welcomed me. And I just found my niche in the world. And from that point on, I mean, that was when I was maybe 15. I'm 63 now. To this day, no matter how the rest of my life is, if I go into any gym, I'm at home. That's my safe place in the world. So I, I, uh, I find that really interesting because one of the issues that uh, has, has come up recently in the sort of blindness community has to do with the issue of accessibility when it comes to equipment in these gyms. Um, how, do you, how did you sort of work around that if you, know, if you had that issue? Over okay. My, my answer to this in part, Peter, is going to probably offend a person or two out there, but I'm very, I guess pragmatic would be the right world. I'm very realistic when I look at things. In my day, when I first came into a gym, first of all, cardio equipment seems to be the only equipment that people have accessibility issues with. When I started lifting, there was no such thing as cardio equipment. I owned a gym for five years before I bought the first exercise bicycle we had in it. By the time I left the gym in 1998, I had treadmills and ellipticals and stair climbers and all of that, but hardcore weightlifting muscle gyms like I joined had no cardio equipment. So there were no accessibility issues. I mean, it was, the machines were pretty simple. If I can't read the number on the machine where I put the pin, I just count the holes, ask someone what the heaviest one is, what the lightest one is, uh, where I, where my opinion might differ from people. And I said, I might annoy or piss off some people. The manufacturers of treadmills, ellipticals, et cetera, all this computerized stuff, 
they they look at when they do research and development, they look at how many units they're going to sell. And it's not feasible, probably, to invest a lot in research and development to make a treadmill talking because they just don't see that they're going to sell that many of them, quite frankly. Yeah, I, I, I think that's I think that's reasonable. On the other hand, the, the treadmills, most of the treadmills that I've seen, well, the treadmills that I, that I have um, don't have a uh, don't have a speech, but they have feelable buttons that you, you know, they, and you can learn how to which button to push, and that tells you how how much uh, incline you have, and so on and so forth. Um, so, but more and more of these machines seem to be touchscreen. Where, you, where the where buttons yeah. don't seem to, and I think that that I think is the is the primary complaint. The same thing with the weight is... with the, with the weight things. Uh, when I was in a gym, um, there were no pins. You know, everything was was done by touching a screen, and I think that's 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 where the, the problem is in, in my experience, anyway. Well, what what you're saying is true. Touch screens. You know, they always say they're making the world more and more accessible. But then, you know, a few years ago, my wife bought me a Blu-ray player for, for Christmas. And I went, okay, this is wonderful. I know the button's on the, on the remote, but now I have on-screen menus that I can't do a thing with. <laughs> and, yeah, what, what you're saying is true. Um, all this high-tech stuff is not accessible. And I, I honestly don't see a need for all this super high-tech stuff. Hand yeah. me a bench, a bar, some dumbbells, some kettlebells, a basic pulley machine. And I don't need all the buzzers and bells. And honestly, what they're there for is to keep it interesting for people that really aren't that serious about it. And I, I think that's right. I think what you're saying is absolutely true. The, the problem, as you, as you said, is we live in a, in a world where uh, that kind of those gadgets to make things look interesting are really important. You know, to keep people focused on whatever it is you want to do, and, and, and your point is well taken. If if you really want to do it, you can do it. It's just it's there's just always a, a way around it. There's, yeah, there's always at least, at least a way to sort of work around it to some degree. Um, yeah. And I, I, I and that's why I'm sort of interested in in your stories because you know here, here's a person who you know wasn't raised around well I, I, you know who, who who didn't start out being particularly fit and no walked into a gym. And found your safe space, which I find really, really interesting. So, you know, talk more, talk more about how it was safe for you. You, t- you start talking about it. What, what made sure. it safe for you? Um, sure. You know. Absolutely. Well, as I say, um, the first gym I joined was a Vic Tannies. And my parents gave me that membership for my 16th birthday because I nagged the heck out of them until they, they took me. <laughs> Um, I was a spoiled brat, you know, I was an only child. My brother was substantially older. So for all practical purposes, I was raised as an only, um, Vic Tannies, that was back in the day when health clubs had alternate days of men, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, women, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday kind of thing. And nobody comes in on Sundays. Uh, they used to split the day on Sunday. Till lunchtime was one, then afternoon was the other, or I don't know how they did it, honestly. But yeah, that was that was the way in gyms back up until the early 70s, mid-70s, I guess you would say. Then they started just opening things up. But you know, you had like like the Victanis I had had a big wet area, steam, sauna, whirlpool. Everyone walked around naked back there. There was not set up to have um separate showers and separate locker rooms. 
that that all came a little bit later. But once I left there, I mean, I didn't feel uncomfortable in there, but it wasn't, I didn't have the magic there. How I ended up where I ended up is kind of ironic. My mother took me to the gym one day and the, it was closed. The uh, place had miraculously caught on fire and rumor had it that the owner wanted to collect some insurance. But I had read a newspaper article and actually I'd bought a bunch of old bodybuilding magazines, back issues from from one of the magazines online. And you know, I could I could see back then with a magnifier and I could read. And I read a story about a guy named Gene Massey, who was Mr. Florida, teenage Mr. Florida, a bunch of other titles. And he was from Hollywood. And um, then I came to find out that Gene had limited vision. He had lost one of his eyes in an accident when he was a kid. And I went to the gym and Gene was very nice to me. I was totally overwhelmed because he was just this big, massive bodybuilder. And I was a little chubby 16-year-old kid and he was getting ready for a competition. And he was as nice as can be to me. And he answered all my questions. And uh, I ended up joining the gym. Sadly, he, he died very shortly after that in a plane crash. But then his father took the business over and his father kind of took me under his wing. I guess maybe the vision thing because he'd gone through it with his son. I don't know. But the old man kind of took me under his wing. He gave me my first job sweeping up in the gym. And I just hung out there as much as I could. And back then, it was a very hardcore environment. It was construction workers, cops, firefighters, lifeguards. The only time you saw a female in the gym back then was if she was somebody's girlfriend, for the most part. Just very rare. And I guess they just saw I was serious. They just saw I wanted to learn. I wanted to get fast past being the little chubby kid. And... You know, they saw how bad I wanted it and they were nice to me and they made me feel comfortable and they didn't make me feel at all different. And it just became my home. It became my home out away from home. Mr. Massey, uh, like I said, kind of took me under his wing and he made me feel good about myself. And eventually I ended up buying that gym with the help of my family. So it was so, my so, rules. So, so what I was just going to say. So, so what kind of activities did you do in that gym? You know, you, you're you're this you're this kid, and you're you, you grew to something different. So, what kind of what kinds of things did you do in that gym? It was did a hardcore weightlifting gym. Okay, it was a hardcore weightlifting gym. Like I said, we had con- you know construction workers, cops, firefighters, guys that wanted to be bigger or stronger. There were a few few wrestlers in there, and you know when I saw a real wrestler in person, that just you know was was huge and again those guys were nice to me you know i wasn't i'm basically a a, i've got a mouth anyone that knows me knows i'm sarcastic and but i know enough when i'm around people that know more about something than i do to shut up and listen and i asked a lot of questions and you know people were patient with me i kind of sat and watched guys and just, you know, well, what are you doing? Well, why are you doing that? Well, in the magazine, it says to do this. No, that's a waste of your time. So they taught me all the stuff in the magazines was wrong, which I learned later. Anyway, from talking with the guys that were in the magazines, but it basically just became 
my safe place. I learned all about strength training and bodybuilding and weight training and eventually got in good enough shape that I competed in a couple teenage and uh, novice bodybuilding competitions. And then, like I say, we, we bought the gym and we had zero cardio. It was all free weights and strength training, Nautilus machines. That's the brand everyone knows, but you know, that kind of thing. So talk about those competitions. How, how do those competitions work? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean. Well, you, you said you, 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 you participated in some uh, competitions as, a, as teenagers, as a teenager. I, particip- I participated in a couple bodybuilding competitions yeah. and that's so just talk- a matter of, okay, sure. Yeah. Well, if you've never seen one on TV, they used to be all over a wide world of sports and sports world and a lot of other different things, but Basically, it's it's um, you just walk on stage as a group. The judges are looking at you standing in different positions, comparing your development, the symmetry, the balance of development in your body, how much body fat you have, that kind of thing. And then you come back out and you do an individual uh, presentation, a posing routine, where you go through a sequence of poses designed to show off whatever you think is your best features. If you know, if you're a guy with big arms, you're going to do a lot of poses with, you know, showing off your arms or if you, the guy with the really good abdominals, et cetera. And so you, um, you go through your posing and then they call back the, the winners and present some trophies. And I entered, I don't know, maybe a half dozen of them. I never did well. And I realized I just didn't have the genetics to be successful at it, but I used them as a reason to get in as best shape of my life. I have a picture hanging in my gym here in the house of me on stage when I was 21 that I love to show to people because I'm just so proud of the condition I was in. Little fat kid had abs. He was ripped. He wasn't very big, but he was very defined. And I was very, very, I'm still very proud of that picture. So uh, when I opened the gym, I realized, you know, I love the whole competition thing, but I'm just not very good at it but I'd learned a lot and I started training other people for competition. And my thing really was the posing. I learned how to make it elegant and entertaining. And the one thing I realized is people are paying in the audience for an evening's entertainment. Okay. They might be there to see their friend compete, but they're paying their 10 or 15 or whatever dollars for an evening's entertainment. So when I started promoting shows, I started incorporating different things. I had dancers, I had a magician once, I had different things to make it entertaining. Cause if mom's in the audience and she came to see her son compete in the teenage show, you know, he's over and done in his two minutes and there's still three hours of show. So I don't want her to get up and leave. So I, I switched getting on the stage to running the show and standing on stage and emceeing, which happened purely by accident. My second year, my MC didn't show up and I went, "Uh oh, we got a problem. So I wasn't able to see the names of the contestants. So I just got somebody to stand in the curtains right behind me where no one could see them cueing me. And I just stood up there and had a nice chat with a thousand of my best friends and emceed the show. And I don't think half the people in the audience even knew I couldn't see. And I continued doing that for as long as I ran the shows. That's awesome. That's awesome. It was fun. So, so, so I, um, 
Uh, Gay, back to so you described how the shows took place and you know, the posing and all that good stuff. It sounds more like a sort of a, 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 your a traditional beauty contest. So you have to sort of learn as a blind person and you're, you know, how to position your body in certain ways to, to, to show off, to show off your stuff. Right. Um, exactly. Exactly. What invariably will happen and has always happened to make sure contestants stood in the best lighting on the stage promoters at least good promoters, we always mark the stage with a big piece of tape. So you'd know, all right, you know, from here to here, you got good light. And I'd walk, I would walk the stage before there was an audience barefooted. So I could feel the tape and I'd go, okay, it's about 10 paces from the curtain. And so I got a feel for where the audience would be and where the best lighting would be. And my, my goal in my head was, Let's see if they figure out I can't see where I'm going. And I always made the effort of walk out, look at the audience, smile, and, mm. you know, just try and give them as good a show as I could. And, you know, it's interesting, Peter, I, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, you said kind of like a traditional beauty contest. It's interesting because do, do you mind if I kind of go into a little bodybuilding history here? Yeah, yeah please, please do. Please. Okay. Go right ahead. Okay. This this has this has nothing to do with me other than the fact that I'm a, a student of the the sport and the history of it. Back when the first ever Mr. America contest was like in the early 40s, and back then, and up until about 1960-ish, there was an interview, not just the the posing. And there was a, because the Mr. America was run in conjunction with the National Olympic Weightlifting Championships, they had to also be able to lift as part of their score. I was very good friends with a man named Bill Pearl, who passed away recently, who was 1953 Mr. America and a half dozen Mr. Universe contests. Bill just passed away about two or three weeks ago. And he was telling me, in fact, Interviewing him on my podcast is the the interview that I'm the most proud of. He was not granting interviews, but through a mutual friend, I had access to him. And we and he told me back in his day, being Mr. America was very much like Miss America, because you had to do the interview where the contestant is sitting there in a suit and tie in front of the judges panel. And you represented, you traveled around and you did personal appearances. So in a way, it was like that it was like a beauty contest in that he was nationally known and he did travel around and he did have obligations to do personal appearances but as time went on they eliminated things and turned bodybuilding into the pure sport of just the bodybuilding and now we're at a point and it's economic they do bodybuilding they do fitness they on the women's side they have bikini competition figure competition physique competition and it's purely economical cuz they've got all these little subdivisions uh, to get more people to participate so i, I i'm not quite sure how to ask this question so for, so forgive me um go for it how, how 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 connected is is sort of this you know mr bodybuilding quote unquote competition that you got involved with and actually getting in shape you know in other words um it sounds like it's more at least from the way you describe it it's more of a 
look looking good than making sure you're you know you're you're in good physical shape. Does that make sense? What I'm saying to you? What's the correlation between the two the two things? Okay, okay, that's actually a very valid question because sadly, a lot of people who have been very successful in competition have put their bodies through so much abuse to get in that kind of condition because you're talking about trying to strip away literally every trace of body fat Mm -hmm. to be as defined as you possibly can be. And that requires just like ridiculously strict dieting over a long period of time back before anabolic steroids were prevalent in sports guys might start dieting for a competition 12 to 16 weeks out, depending on how overweight they thought they might be. Um, So the guys that looked the best weren't healthy. They were very lean. There were the body fat level was low, but no being in what was expected of them was not necessarily a healthy condition. Yeah. They were in fantastic shape. Their bodies were perfectly defined. They were, you know, zero body fat. But no, it's not the healthiest thing. Yeah, it's, it's just, fine. What defines healthy body fat? Yeah, good question. What 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 does define good body fat? You know, what defines good body fat? You mean a good level? Yeah, a good level. Or how do you know? You know, you're you're not going. Like, I know most of us don't are are not to extreme, but you know there are people you know who who do go to extremes. And how how do you separate the two? I guess is the question. Okay, are we talking like the obsessive compulsive anorexic? Yeah, yeah, type? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I guess that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Okay, sure. Um, <clears throat> let me give that a, a, a thought for a second. I want to make sure I express it correctly. You can you can do that, but what happens with people that go to that kind of extreme, generally, they're not working out. They're just, you know, starving themselves or doing the purging thing. And no, they're not healthy, but they're also, most of the time, they're what I would call fat skinny. Now, there's one that I, you know, you said it was questioning how you express the question. Fat skinny doesn't make sense to most people. But if you have no muscle and you're still mushy, that's fat skinny. I'll give you a perfect example that relates to me. I was able to go through two years in the whole lockdown and everything and not get sick. And both my wife and I got COVID um, last April. We did a cruise. We came back. We both had COVID. I seem to get over it quickly, but I developed that. I'm sure you've all heard of this, this, what do they call it? Long-term COVID yeah. Yeah. where you are just yeah. draggy and lethargic and you know, you got no energy. It's near as I can understand. I'm sure we all remember chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Same thing, same thing. So for months, I barely, barely could work out. And when I don't work out, my nutrition goes straight in the can. Just I, my, my body craves carbs. My body craves sugar. Uh, I was down to like, my good weight is 180, 185. I was down under 170 and I was soft. I was flabby. 
I'd lost pretty much every trace of muscle and I was fatter than I, than I was, you know, so I felt horrible. It's very depressing. So I have been for the last few months to quote my favorite wrestling announcer (laughs) on the comeback trail, trying to get my strength back, trying to put the muscle back on and the, the body fat will take care of itself. Once I start putting muscle back on the fat naturally just seems to work its way down a little. So uh, um, I don't know if I answered your question in no, there or you, not. No, 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 you did. I, I, I think, you know, it, it's a, it's a fine line. And cause, cause I, because, you know, most of us uh, speaking for myself, you know, would, would like to get in, in better. We don't want to be a bodybuilder, but we would like to get in, in, in decent shape. And so I guess my question to you is um, eventually you, you, you bought your, you, you bought the gym, right? And you started yes, uh, helping people get in better shape, presumably, right? I mean, or, yes. or was, was, uh, yeah. So you started with weights, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that you realized that weights wasn't everything involved, that people needed to be more cardio in shape as well. How did you sort of come, if that's right, how did, that, how did you sort of come to that conclusion? And so to, to, so to began buying those, you know, cardio things that we talked about earlier in the show. The only reason I started buying cardio equipment is because people kept asking for it. Ah, okay. That's a good answer. Well, that makes sense. When, when people would say, how come you don't have any treadmills? And I'd say, you're in South Florida. We're a mile and a half from the beach. You want to run, go outside in the fresh air. Mm-hmm. And I still believe that. Why run on a treadmill staring at a screen? Unless, of course, you can't do it outside. When you can be out in the fresh air. Why sit on a stationary bike? When you can go outside again in the fresh air and the sun and actually be moving. Um, I never came to a real realization that the weights weren't enough. I never did. And I still don't contend that. Pete, I could put you through strictly a free weight workout and have you huffing and puffing, have you drenched in sweat. And I'll, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna just change the uh, the whole thing around. I'm gonna tell you a personal situation that just happened. For the last um, year or so, my cholesterol levels been a little on the high side. For me, it was 202 to 208, and you know, there's uh, people out there with 250, 260, over 300. So they're saying 200 is no big deal, and I didn't think it was a big deal, but it was high for me. And my doctor said, you know, it's not at a point we need to put you on a med. Just be aware of it. So just recently, I started training with less rest. I finally got to a point where I can train really hard again. And I started doing leg workouts that virtually had no rest going from one thing to another to another and getting my heart rate up and getting my breathing up and that kind of thing. And when I saw my doctor in September, he looked at my blood work. He said, wow, your cholesterol dropped to 168. What was it last time, doc? 202. And your good cholesterol actually went up. How'd you do that? I said, I just finally got to a point where I can train hard again. I do no cardio. I'm doing some kettlebell work and I do some body weight leg work. I do squats without using weight and I do step ups on a box. And I didn't really, you know, my nutrition my nutrition follows my training. When I train hard, my body craves protein. When I don't train, 
I'm a sugar addict, just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, you know, you're listening, to in, you're listening to In Perspective, and my name is Bob Branco, and he's Peter Alto, and our guest is Bill Kosiaba, talking today about fitness. So it's Bob, time thank you now so much for saying my name right. the festivities over to our participants. Ray. So just going to ask everyone to raise your hand and then we'll queue in the order. It's Alt-Y on PC, Option-Y on Mac, Star-9 on telephone and under, uh, under the More tab on smartphones. So do we have any hands raised at the moment, Ray? Judy, you are up next. Why are we having Jaws here? It's on my end, Bob. Not on theirs. Um, Judy, you are first. Hello. Hey, Bill. Great to hear you here. Um, Hey, Judy. How are you? I'm doing well. So I know Bill for a very long time, at least 10 years, if not more. And the way that I got to know Bill is an aspect of his life that you guys have not talked about yet. I started to take a fitness class with Bill at our local lighthouse in Fort Lauderdale, the lighthouse of Broward. And so I know Bill first as a trainer. Um, And now we do a thing online, which we've done since COVID the last two plus years. So uh, Bill is unbelievable as far as his dedication, his explanation of what to do, uh, there, there's, there is nothing that Bill would not do for somebody that comes to him for help. But Bill, so I was wondering if you could explain maybe how you got into training, per, uh, personal training, and also as far as doing that as a, as somebody that's blind, um, because you don't just train people with vision impairments, you train sighted people as well. So I'm just wondering about acceptance of all of that and, you know, just how that works. Great question, Judy. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I yesterday when we did class, I told Judy, ask me something. She said, well, I'll try and think of something. <laughs> Just in case nobody else is asking. Okay. How I started training people was that's just what you did when you owned a gym back in the 80s and 90s. That's just what you did. You walked in and you know, hi, I'm Bob. I want to lose 20 pounds. Okay, Bob, no problem. Let's talk about your eating habits and I'll set you up on a program or hi, I'm Jim. I'm on the high school football team and coach says I need to be bigger. No problem. There was no such thing as a paid personal fitness trainer. When I started, it was just, you walked in the gym and, you know, they took care of you. That was what, and that was, you know, I did what the people did for me back when I first wandered into the Hollywood health center back in 1975. And I loved doing it. It was fun. It's, it's, it's in a way a very creative thing. It's like an artist or a sculptor where they start with something and they kind of just see it progress and they see their finished product. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I, I always looked at, you know, training people. I had some really, really, you know, it was very diverse. I trained high school, a lot of high school kids for their sports. I had one of my favorites was a woman that came in who told me I'm getting married in two months in Key West on the beach and I'm wearing a veil and a white string bikini and I want to look amazing. (laughs) 
<laughs> and the problem was this girl had a perfect, perfect body. She had a background in dance, in ballet. So she had you know, the legs, the hips, the tiny waist. She was as fit as can be. She had an absolutely beautiful body. And I just looked at her and said, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> so she was fun to work with because she had that goal and she was determined. And it was fun for me because I didn't have to motivate. All I had to do was figure out what to do. And it was a challenge. It's like, how do you improve on almost perfection? And um, I'm going to just talk about another person because he was really special to me. It was a guy named Ron. I had a longtime member who was a really cool lady who had suffered from a head injury. She was uh, an exercise girl at a horse track and a horse fell with her on it and she had a head injury. And Carol, Carol was a very, very good friend. She was a member of the gym virtually from open to close. And one day she told me, you know, this head injury support group I go to, there's this kid and his mother that come and I was telling them about you. And I, I, I want, I think you can help him. Well, tell me about him. She said, well, his name is Ron. He's like 25. He's in a wheelchair. He was in a motorcycle accident and he was thrown and landed on his head. And if he wasn't wearing a helmet, he'd probably be dead. And, and all I could think of was, I don't know what to do, but I said, sure, why not bring him in? I mean, I figured I couldn't make things any worse. And he was an amazing learning experience for me. And I'll tell you our first meeting, he walked, they rolled, his mother rolled him in, in his chair. And he was wearing a Jimi Hendrix t-shirt. So that scored points with me. <laughs> and, and, you know, I put my hand out to him and he grabbed my hand and we did the macho BS thing of trying to crush each other's hand. He started it and he was just smiling. So I went, okay. And I squeezed back and he kept squeezing and I squeezed back and we're both just smiling at each other. And after a while, his mother's going, Ronnie, stop it. Ronnie, stop it. And he and I just both started laughing. And we became best friends after that. And what Mm -hmm. I did with Ron is I literally would, they'd come inside and we'd park his wheelchair by my counter. And this is going to sound really harsh. And people who saw me do this and who didn't understand what was going on thought I was the biggest jerk in the world. I made him crawl from apparatus to apparatus. He was very strong. But there was a disconnect between his brain and his muscles. There was a neurological disconnect. So the more he moved and the more he tried to coordinate his movements, the more it had to help him. Mm -hmm. And the goal was to get him out of the chair, which we never really did. But we got to a point where he could pull himself up on one of the apparatus and the machines were close enough together that he could reach from one to the next And, you know, stay on his feet. So he could kind of halfway walk, hanging on to stuff. Hmm. And, you know, when I started doing the, when I posted my website in 2014, out of nowhere, and I hadn't seen him since the 90s, out of nowhere, I get a thank you card from his mother saying we're in Arizona now. And we found this adaptive gym and Ronnie goes to the gym a couple days a week. And I appreciate everything you did for him back then so much, man, I appreciate everything I did then. And every, you know, having the chance 
because he was a learning experience. Now, going on to, I, I'm kind of dragging this out and going off tangent, but how it changed when I lost my vision. I'm very tactile. I have to touch. If I'm training a client one-on-one, the first thing I will explain to them is, obviously, I can't see what you're doing. So I'm going to, at times, put my hands on your body. It's nothing inappropriate. It's just, you know, if you're uncomfortable with it, we can't do this. If you, you know, but if I, if I'm training a woman and we're working on a glute exercise, a butt exercise, I'm going to put my hand on her behind to go, okay, you you should feel it right here. All right. Do the movement. All right. You're not flex our flex and, and all of that kind of thing. And the interesting thing to me is I've had more pushback from men than I have from women. Once a woman mm-hmm. understands the situation, this is totally non-sexual. I'm not, if I do anything that makes you uncomfortable, make sure you tell me. I don't want mm-hmm. you just disappearing. Just tell me. And, you know, but then guys, it's interesting. The United States, because I have a lot of European friends and Latin friends and not to be controversial, but American males are very homophobic. And the idea of me mm-hmm. touching them, even if it's purely professional, was uncomfortable. But I've never had an issue with a female. Mm-hmm. Um with the group thing, I learned so much when I started doing my long distance class. What Judy alluded to is we do an online thing on a site called blindcafe.net. And we do a couple classes a week. It varies depending on everyone else's schedule and who's got something else going on. But I started with them in 2014. And we did it for about two and a half years until I started working with the lighthouse. And then I just got too busy and I learned, okay, I've got somebody in Africa who's 20 years old. I've got somebody in California who's 60 years old. I've got somebody else who's a multi-disability and has difficulty walking somewhere else. And I learned to get super, super descriptive. And I'd always ask, is everybody clear with this? If you're not getting it, tell me. So I learned so much doing this long distance thing, which is really hard because I can't see you. You can't see me. If I don't express it right, you're not going to get it right. And then we started at the lighthouse and I had a room full of people, sometimes as many as what, at times, Judy, maybe 15 at some point. 15, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe even 20 when we first started, when uh, Dolores was a part of it with me. And I'd walk around and move people, you know, touch people, move their arms, move their legs, show them what I wanted. But it was a lot of, a lot of descriptiveness, a lot of touching. And the bigger challenge, by that point, I knew how to, how to explain it. The bigger challenge then was we got, Cheng Mei, who was a 40-year-old Asian lady who was in phenomenal shape. And we have my girlfriend, Gladys, who was 80-plus, who was also in phenomenal shape for her age, but she was 80-plus. Mm-hmm. And we had a gentleman named Dag who came in on his walker. I think he was close to 90. So the big challenge then was, how do I not bury the less fit people without getting the really healthy fit people bored. Yeah. So I so learned I so much. Uh, sorry. 
I, I, I want to ask one quick question. Judy, thank you for, for that question. That really is a good question, and I, and I appreciate it. Uh, and I, I want to go back to the story told about that, that woman who was getting prepared for her wedding. And the, 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 the comment I heard you say was, how do you improve on perfection? And I'm, yeah. I'm really curious, how do you improve on perfection? In other words, here is this person who clearly was in great shape, who clearly looked terrific. How do you improve on perfection? How did how did you uh, figure out how to how to best support her in doing what she wanted? Truthfully, I asked her, "What do you think is wrong? Mm-hmm. What do you think you want to change?" Most of the time, I will all. In fact, all the time, I'll ask somebody, "What do you want to achieve?" Because the key with a fitness program really is goal setting. When someone tells me, well, I want to get in better shape. Well, what does that mean to you? I want to lose some weight. What does that mean to you? How much? By when? I'm very, it's very goal specific. And if you just tell me I want to get in better shape, that's just so vague. I don't know what to do. So I know that I asked her, what do you think needs improvement? And she probably showed me, oh, a trace of fat on her tummy or a little crease at the top of her thigh where her thigh and her behind join. I don't even remember. We're talking almost 35 years ago. The thing I remember is it was a challenge and she was fun to work with. So I don't even remember what her perceived flaws are or were. I just remember every guy in the gym's tongues hanging out when she was there. And she was just the coolest, nicest girl in the world. And we got along great. We had a lot of fun. And um, she was happy. She was satisfied with the results when the wedding came. I don't know what I did. I don't know what she, I didn't see but any I, changes, but she did. But, but, but I think you've answered your, the question that I, that, uh, you know, I, I think you know, part of when we're trying to support people and doing anything to change something, the, the first question is to ask the, the right questions, right? What is what is this, you know, what, what specifically do you want that's different? You know how will, exactly. how will how will you know that you've you've gotten to where you want to go? You know all those kinds of questions, and I think that's must be really important in the work that you do as well. You know how how it's essential. Right. Yeah, because once all you know right. that, then then you can start working. Thank you, Ray. Uh, thank you, Sorry. thank you, Judy. Uh, right before we. Uh... Uh, I don't want to run out too much time. We have one more person, uh, and I apologize if the name wrong. Either Nora or Laura on an iPad. You are up next. Yeah, hi, it's Nora from Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Nora. Yep, Nora. Hey, Nora. Nora. Hi, pleasure to meet you. It's my pleasure, dear. Thank you. Welcome. And uh, my question is: When you were a child, when did you very first wanted to do the? Uh, Exercise training. I, I I just wanted to be big and strong. I, like I said, I was obsessed with wrestling. I used to love watching wrestling. And this is the fun part. With my mom, not my dad. My dad liked Ooh. real sports. My mom loved watching wrestling with me. <laughs> That's but, good. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I hated being a little fat kid that everyone made fun of. And I love the whole idea of superheroes being bigger, bigger than life and strong and nobody can pick on me and, you know, all of that kind of thing. And I think my actual starting point was in a wrestling magazine, there was an ad send, you know, send in the the coupon and get the Joe Weider 
bodybuilding course. And there were pictures of guys in the ad. And one guy in particular, a guy named Dave Draper, who they had nicknamed the Blonde Bomber. And Dave became my hero. And then later in life, we became friends, which was really cool to actually become friends with somebody who was who I idolized when I was a kid. And I started with the little little course, the Joe Weider at home course. And I just knew I wanted to be big and strong. And I felt like this was my, my world. I couldn't do what my brother did. I couldn't play football and basketball and run track and all that good stuff. But I could do this. Great. Thank you. Of course, Nora. So uh, just out of curiosity, you had an older brother who was this, uh, uh, you know, this big sports guy. Uh, uh, yep who was a lot older than you, how, uh, how supportive was he of what you were trying to do? Uh, you know, what, what was your relationship like with your, with your brother during the, during those days? My brother from as long back as I can remember until the day he died, January 1st of this year was my hero. Just that simple. He was the classic big brother. I always looked up to him. I always admired him. He was cool. He was a great athlete. He had all the women. People respected him. And he loved me. He did not live at home. He was 18 years older than I was. Mm -hmm. When I was like one or two, he joined the military. And he was career army, put in 20 plus years. And so we weren't together a lot. There were times when he'd be around, but not a lot. But he was always supportive. He tried to be supportive and tell me what to do with the weight training and the nutrition, but he, re he really didn't know. He told me I wanted to get big. I should drink beer. Well, I, oh, I, don't, oh. I, don't, I don't think that's part of the deal, but, you know. but oh. he was from an era when athletic coaches did not, you know, weightlifting made you muscle bound, made you slow, made you stiff. So he had never lifted weights ever in his life. You know, and he was, like I said, Football, baseball, basketball, all of that. Weight training was never included because he went through high school, I guess, in the in the, the late 50s. Desi, you're up so. next. Hello, everybody. Um, my friend Judy will be surprised to know that I used to listen to your real world podcast and it was a great cast. I'm sorry it no longer exists. And are there any places where we can go to re-listen? My website is still up, and I believe all the links on it are still active. Excellent. So what, Excellent. So, so what is your website? Oh, it's your old, my, your old website. Or the, site no, the, the website is still there. I just don't – I haven't updated it in a long time. I just pay the fees every year to make sure it doesn't die. And um, it's my name, K-O-C-I-A-B-A with a dash and the word fitness. And I really appreciate, you know, what you just said about the podcast. Honestly, Siratech, who was the creator, production sponsor, um, just at one point decided the numbers weren't good enough. And I thought that was kind of funny because I looked back at the numbers and I was, you know, few thousand to several thousand when I did a mainstream person like Bill Pearl that I mentioned, I think I had like 40,000 hits. Wow. That's great. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, some of you may remember a professional wrestler named Bob Backlund, who was a big star in the 70s and early 80s. And I interviewed Bob, and I get the same thing, like 35, 40,000 hits. And, um, but Ciratech pretty much decided, no, we're not going to support this anymore. And that was at a point where, now, I used to really work my research. If I had a guest on that had a new book out, I read the book. I wanted to treat that person with the right amount of respect. And I wanted to ask intelligent questions. So I did a lot of work and I was burned out. So when they called me and said, you're done as of November 30th, I actually went, thank you. I need a break. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I really tried. One of the proudest things that I ever have, a comment from one of my guests, a guy named Dan John, who is one of the top people in strength training, one of the top coaches in the world. And we finished up a podcast talking about Dan's new book. Dan was a guest three or four times. And he said, I got to tell you, I love doing podcasts with you. I said, well, that's great. You know, we just like to talk together and it's easy. He said, no, no, not, you know, we took, cause we talk offline, but he said, you know, my stuff. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, you know, you just wrote a new book. Uh, wouldn't it be kind of stupid if I don't know what to ask you about the book? He said, you'd be shocked at how many people read the back cover or read the little blurb on the website and haven't got a clue and interview me. So he said, I really like well, this is keep working with you because of that. To everybody. What's that, uh, Bob? I appreciate it. What's yeah. that, Bob? This is why I sent out Bill's bio to everybody on the list so that you can refer to it. Well, I, yes. I appreciate that. And, you know, so it's before, obvious that you put... I just want to say, Bill, that I am truly sorry for your loss of your brother. I know that had to be a big one. And I've gone through quite a bit of loss myself in the last few years. So just, uh, just condolences that. to you. I, I appreciate that. And re- regarding the, the podcast, we kind of thought we were bringing it back just before COVID. Somebody approached me and we actually recorded two new ones and we were going to re-release some of my favorite of the old ones. And the guy just kind of dropped the ball. Kind of really upset me because I went on Facebook. I went back on Twitter, which I never do. And I said, you know, for those of you that have bothered me about, you know, when's re- what's what happened to the podcast, we're, we're coming back. And I felt foolish because the other guy dropped the ball, but I had made the mistake of giving people a heads up, hey, it's coming. And it never did. So if there's anyone out there we listening about, that wants go for it, Bob. We have Sorry. about two minutes more. I just want to find out if there are any hands being raised at the moment. Ray? Ray? I think Ray well, went for coffee. Two, you are up next. Repeat that, Ray. What do we have, Ray? Anybody? Phone number ending in 682. I, I believe you're up next. Oh, hi. Hi. Can you hear there me? You are. Yeah, now we can. Hi. It's, okay. Hi. It's we have about Wanda. two minutes. So okay, I'll make it very I'll, I'll make it very, very quick. So during COVID, my, I, I'm, I'm actually going to ask for a little advice. During COVID, my gym closed and I developed a workout routine at home um, for my upper body, which works really well. 
And I really like strength training, so I'm happy to hear you say that cardio cardio is not everything. Um, oh, I hate I cardio, but I love <laughs> I love strength training. So what do you what do you recommend for lower body at home? Okay, I'm going to give you a leg workout that actually a friend of mine had mentioned, and I went, well, "That's so simple, but it makes perfect sense." And I did this for okay. about a month because. Uh, do you have any kind of like a box or something you can do step ups on? Yeah. Okay. And if you feel a little shaky, just hold on to something for, for balance. Okay. But, but I'll tell okay. you the exact leg workout. I did this um, once or twice a week. Cause I alternate my upper body and lower body days and I'm, I'm 63 okay. and I need a little more recovery time than I used to. So one week I might train yeah. legs once the next week I train twice. It was alternating step-ups and bodyweight squats. I would do 10 step-ups with a left foot lead. Then I'd pause for a second, 10 step-ups with a right foot lead, then 10 deep bodyweight squats. Then immediately back on the box. And I went 10, 15, 20, 25, 20, 15, 10. And just back and forth and back and forth with no rest. It took like 25 to 30 minutes. If you got any more questions, if you want to talk to me further about that, I was about to say, if this young lady has any other questions, Bob's welcome to give me her or give her my cell phone number offline if she wants. Okay. I'm here to help you. Thank you. And it's kosiaba-fitness.com, correct? Yes. And my email is kosiaba without the dash fitness at gmail.com. Yes, sir. All right. Bill, thank you once again for appearing on the program. It's always a pleasure to be here. And thank you guests for asking me questions. That's our pleasure. Next week, we're going to be featuring Rebecca Bridges. She's going to be talking about homeschooling, which is a fascinating subject, I think. And I think more and more people are doing it. And I think this is going to be a very interesting program. Peter, Ray, Bill, and our participants, thank you very, very much for giving us the opportunity to have you on the show. Go safe, everybody, with God's abundant blessings. Bye for now.